To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Our scripture today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 26. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all, of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen, amen. Good to see everybody. Y'all doing all right? Hey, if you haven't already done so, turn, your, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We're nearing the end of our series. If you're with us for the first time, uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you're here, that you're worshiping with us today. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the giving table in the back. You can run back there real quick, uh, grab one, and uh, turn to 1 Corinthians. There's a table of contents right in the beginning of your Bible, if you're unfamiliar with your Bible. And, uh, and we'll be going through that. I have to admit, it sounds like a little bit like Easter today, doesn't it? Like with our songs and obviously the, the text. But what we are embarking on is, is near the end of Paul's letter. He goes into probably one of the most important and uh, deep theological treatises on the resurrection that we have in our whole Bible. And surprisingly, but maybe not so surprisingly as we're getting to the text today, uh, this falls in at the end of Paul's letter as he caps that letter off. Uh, pastor and author Tim Keller describes the resurrection as the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. Now the commentator says, the doctrine of the resurrection has profound implications for how anyone lives. The resurrection of Christ in the past and the resurrection of human beings in the future has deep practical significance for the present. It changes both death and life, changes both the way death and life are understood and experienced. And with that, let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, I'm grateful. Thank you for this, this opportunity to come. I pray this morning in our little gathering there that this, this, how neat is it that we have a country that we can wake up and we can gather publicly without shame, without any kind of persecution and come and worship you. We, we thank you for that, for that privilege that, that we get to be born here in this day and age and in our own country where we express our love and our thanks and our uh, devotion to you out in the open. Everywhere around the world, that can't happen. That doesn't happen. So uh, we don't take that for granted. Lord, even as we wake up this morning with the extra hour, praise the Lord, and uh, the brisk, cool morning, we're reminded of how creative you are, of how good you are to us, that you allow us to live one more year, one more day. We don't take that for granted. We also don't take for granted the gathering of your church. So God, we're not here because we have to. We're here because we get to. Paul exhorts us not to, not to uh, forsake the gathering of ourselves together, but do it all the more as we see the day approaching. So we do that today. And Holy Spirit, we're, we're, we're selfish in this regard. We need you. We're here that we might hear from you. So I pray that 
you would speak to us individually, speak to us corporately as a church, particularly as it regards to the resurrection. Give us hope, the hope that comes, that this life is not all there is. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So we've come through a lot, you know, it's a lot of detail in this, this letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And sort of towards the end, he uh, falls on this topic of, of the resurrection. And much like we did with spiritual gifts, we really are in a series within this broader series as we're going to unfold what Paul writes to us uh, and teaches us theologically about the resurrection over, uh, over three weeks, including what Nick preached last week at the beginning of chapter 15. Paul addresses the topic of resurrection because some of the Corinthians had, uh, had been believing that there was no bodily resurrection. A lot of times we, we impose like a simplicity on the ancient cultures that they're so gullible they'll believe anything. But honestly, the, the Corinthians... Uh, would have thought the same thing about someone rising from the dead that we think. I mean, that's, that's like uh, half of you are skeptical. The other half thinks it's just weird. It's like corpses walking around that, that were once put in the grave would be akin to the, the, the zombie apocalypse. For us, it would be like The Walking Dead, for those of you that, walk, that, that watch that series, right? It's something that you'll watch on TV, but if that happened in real life, you're like, I, all right, I'm leaving. I've had enough. <clears throat> And so when we hear that the, 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 the Christian bodily resurrection happened, when the Corinthians hear that, especially in the context of their, uh, their hyped-up knowledge and spiritual culture, they would have criticized it as being unrefined. But more than that, they would have just flat-out said, this can't be real. Another thing to note about the Corinthian culture is they had, uh, the, in this Greco-Roman world, the philosophers said the human body was, was bad. It wasn't thought to be good. In fact, it was evil. So the goal was to get out of the body, to remove the body as if, as if it were like an outer, car, uh, outer garment, like a dirty garment, so that your human soul could go free. So they really pursued this disembodied kind of living. And so this is what many in Corinth were believing because of the dominant culture, culture believing that, to include those in the church over and against Jesus having victory over death, hell, and the grave, dying, rising to newness of life. And so consequently, uh, they're having a hard time understanding this concept of resurrection because the culture is, is putting them against it. And so Paul addresses this, their, their false thinking that there can't be a bodily, direction, bodily resurrection, and he says it this way, starting in verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as, ri uh, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, then those who, who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so in this stretch of verses, Paul's actually playing devil's advocate. And so he's basically telling the Corinthians, all right, so let's just imagine that the resurrection didn't happen. Let's, let's logically play that out to see its necessary conclusions and in verses 12 through 19, he actually lays out five, five conclusions. The first of which is, is if the resurrection didn't happen, then my preaching to include like in the 21st century, what I'm saying right now from the pulpit, uh, but also all of our faith is in vain. We find that in verse 14. If you are new to Christianity, what Christians have believed from the Bible doctrinally is that Jesus is both God and man. He existed as the second person of the Trinity uh, in God's plan of redemption, God uh, incarnates him, he condescends into, into our world and lives our life, and he, God, becomes man. And so Paul is arguing, if the resurrection is not true, then here's, here's the thing, Jesus can't be God. But how did Jesus prove that he was God? He got up from the grave. 
If that didn't happen, he's not really God. Consequently, what many of us believe to, uh, is, is pointless if there is no resurrection. The second conclusion that Paul makes is that we, the church, are being false witnesses. We find that in verse 14. If there is no resurrection, then, then we're just a bunch of liars. All of y'all in this room, you're just lying. We're lying, about, we're lying to the world about God, but we're also misrepresenting him. The third conclusion that he makes is that our faith is futile. And this is, uh, this is the central point of Paul's argument in all these, all these verses here. And, and it's such a big point that Paul, in verse 16 and 17, repeats himself. He says it more than once. If Jesus wasn't raised, then your faith is meaningless, it's worthless, it's nothing. It's as if you have no faith. And for us, that means that we're, we're still under the curse of our sins. So if you've been in Christianity for a while, you know that Christianity teaches that on the cross, the great exchange happened. Really, the, the most beautiful thing in the world that could happen to a person uh, happened. Jesus, uh, on the cross, bears our sin. He takes all that's bad about us, all our evil thoughts, our words, our, disease, our, de- our deeds, and what do we get? We get his righteousness. We get the, the, the perfect obedience that, that he gave towards God. The innocent one, Jesus, gets treated as if he were guilty, so that the guilty ones, the truly guilty ones, you and me, are, are counted as if we're innocent. So Paul is saying, if, if Jesus never rose from the dead, then we actually have no idea if God even sanctioned the cross. More than that, we have no idea whether God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, and consequently, Jesus could, um, he could just really be some, some lunatic. If the resurrection didn't happen, there is no forgiveness of sins to be found in Jesus. Fourthly, Paul says, there's no heaven. We see that in verse 18, which means our loved ones who have pursued Jesus and loved Jesus and put their faith in Jesus, that have gone, that are past, are not really with Jesus now. Think of it this way. If Jesus didn't die and go to a better place, that means you and I aren't going to either. There is no heaven. This is just wishful thinking. And lastly, Paul says, if there is no resurrections, then Christians of all people, more than anybody else on the whole planet, should just be pitied. Because at the center of Christian teaching is is denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following Jesus. We see it all over the Gospels. We we deny ourselves for the good of others because that's what Jesus did, right? And so we sacrifice our temporal happiness in order to benefit the people around us. Jesus says stuff like, don't store up treasures on earth, instead be generous. He says, don't hoard money, give it away, then you'll have treasures in heaven because you can't take it with you anyway, right? But if Jesus wasn't raised There is no heaven. This is all a lie. It's just a delusion, which is why we should be pitied, because we have kept ourselves back from all kinds of pleasurable experiences, all for naught. We could have been having fun. Instead, we pledged our allegiance to King Jesus, who is no king. That is, if there was a resurrection. We've been wasting our time. Paul will later say in verse 32, if there's no resurrection, let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because if there is no resurrection, Christians are just wrong. We deserve pity. We're pathetic. We're throwing off our lives, throwing our lives away on a big lie. And so, I mean, that's, that's pretty deep right there, isn't it? That puts you in a somber mode. So Paul is arguing the resurrection is either true, it's, it's either the truth on which everything else hinges, or it's completely, absolutely false. Because without the resurrection, Christian ministry is pointless. Without the resurrection, yours and my personal faith is ineffective. Without the resurrection, God's character is called into question. Without the resurrection, Christians, all of us, are still in need of salvation. There's no sense, future sense of hope that we have. And lastly, our present experience is absolutely meaningless. We would be here for nothing if there is no resurrection. And so Paul is calling out these, these Corinthians. He's admonishing them that, that they had not taken into account the importance of the resurrection. They didn't realize all the things that would just like start to fall apart 
because they, they said that there was no bodily resurrection. And of course, then comes the but. Y'all ever noticed when you see the conjunction but in the, in the Bible? In this case, it's not a but God, but Paul says, he does say but, but in fact. And on the other side of but in Paul's and Pauline theology is usually always something illuminating that we should pay attention to. And so play, after playing devil's advocate, here's what Paul does. He makes an argument for the historical reality of the resurrection. And we see him start to do that in verse 20. But in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. But Paul says, Man, he's not necessarily talking about males as in gender. Uh, this is the Greek word anthropos, and so the sense is mankind. And so he's talking about uh, embodied spiritual beings. Think of Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden, which is where Paul goes when he explains the resurrection. So when Paul talks about the resurrection, at least initially, he doesn't immediately go future. He actually goes all the way back to Adam and Eve to show us actually why we need the resurrection. So Genesis 1 and 2, we have this poetic, beautiful, historical account of creation. For God in six days creates the world. The seventh day, he rested. On the pinnacle of creation, day six, he creates man. God forms man out of the dust and breathes into him the breath of life, and he becomes a human spirit. That's a good day. Adam and Eve are formed out of the physical matter, and then God breathes spiritual life into them. And at the conclusion of creation, God looks at all that he had made, particularly at Adam and Eve, and he says, hmm, this is very good. God was pleased. Here's the bad part. And we don't know how long this lasted, for us, it's only one chapter in the Bible. Just like flip your page or maybe just look right from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Unfortunately, that very good of creation didn't last very long, did it? It was short-lived. The first human sin, giving into the temptation of Satan, they eat the forbidden fruit. They, ate the, they did the thing that God said not to do. They ate from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. And this sets up the entire narrative that we all need somebody who comes in a body not to fall into temptation but to submit himself fully to God's will on behalf of all of humanity so that we can be saved from our rebellion. And in the history of redemption, we find out that many things are prophesied, that the Son of Man will come, the Son of David will, will be on an eternal throne. The, the Israelites are waiting for the great Messiah to come. And in the, uh, the first century, they wanted that Messiah to come and restore, the, restore, restore Old Testament Israel so they would be a prominent country once again, ruling over all that they are supposed to rule over. God in his wisdom, he sends Jesus. He incarnates as a baby. He grows up wearing our skin, walking our roads, drinking our drink, eating our food. He's God, but he's fully human. And here's the, the, the most important thing about Jesus. He overcomes the temptation. What temptation, Jeff? Every temptation the temptation of being human. Creator becomes a part of his creation and he does all the things that we do, suffers so that he would learn obedience to God, and he's tempted in every way that you and I are. And yet Jesus doesn't give in to it. He submits to God the Father on our behalf. He goes to the cross to pay for our sin in a physical body. He's buried in that body, in a grave, three days with our sin now connected to him. That body is resurrected. When he's raised, he leaves our sin, thank the Lord, in the grave. He rises to newness of life in a resurrection body that's victorious over death, hell, Satan, and the grave. And he does that not for himself. He does that for you and me. And so in the rest of our text, Paul is sort of teasing that out. He is telling us, he's showing us the resurrection reality that we should all embrace because Jesus, God, uh, God incarnate, lived uh, a human life, died on the cross in our place for our sin, went into the grave on our behalf, and came up victorious over death. No one's ever done it before. No one will do it again until Jesus comes again and raises us with him. And so he teaches that out. Here's the first thing that Paul tells us. He says the resurrection brings life both today and, and forevermore. The resurrection brings new life both today 
and forevermore. And so as we look back to Genesis again, theologians call Adam the federal head. Federal head. A federal head is a, is a term that you may not uh, use, but you're familiar with it. Federal head is just a, represent, a representative of a larger group of people, typically someone over a federation or some, uh, some group of people in covenant with each other. And so because Adam was the first human on the planet, he was in a provisional covenant with God in, in the garden, and he acted on our behalf. This would be like our president um, deciding that we're going to go to war. When the president decides that we're going to war, hopefully he has conferred with Congress so that we don't send troops into combat without the, all the branches of government uh, agreeing to that. But what we individually as citizens believe about that war is inconsequential because the president is our federal head. And as the president uh, leads us, he sets the trajectory regardless if you agree with it or not. Okay, does that make sense? Let me give you a, uh, an illustration a little bit closer to where you live. Parents, you are the federal head of your family. And so when a parent makes decisions for the family, the kids, regardless if they agree with it or not, get to go along with mom and dad. And the parents said, amen, right? So yesterday was, was fall cleanup day in the tumor household, right? I didn't want to do it. <laughs> but, but my wife declared it. She hauled up to Zoe, Zoe, it's cleanup day. Minutes pass. <laughs> Zoe's like, don't do this, Dad, don't do this. We, we cleaned up our house yesterday, right? <laughs> because the, tumor, the, the parents are the federal head of the, of the family. So y'all can come visit us in our, at least the first floor. It's like pristine. It, it smells good. It looks good. We got rid of all the dust and the cobwebs and all that stuff. It's just wonderful. And so the theology of sin is such that Adam and Eve made a decision to rebel against God on behalf of all of humanity so that all who are born into, the, into life are born into an immediate broken reality. We call this sin. Theologians actually say, they use the term total depravity, meaning that there's nothing in you that, that merits God's favor. Total depravity doesn't mean that you're evil. It doesn't mean that you can't do good things. It just means that um, there's nothing that good in you, even in the good things, that merits God give, gifting you salvation outside of, outside of Jesus. More importantly, it means that in your totality, in your total, in your total being, your thoughts, your emotions, uh, your intentions, and your actions, all those things are affected by sin. And so every human being born in the world now experiences this reality where our first inclination is not necessarily to, to be good and do good, do good things. It's not necessarily to submit to God, but it's to live for self. And again, if you're a parent in the room with kids, you know this. You're living through it. You bring that bottle of joy home, and it's just wonderful. And then all of a sudden, there's a little bit of crying, and you know, the things that happen with the baby, and then all of a sudden, you're not controlling the baby, the baby is controlling you. Sometimes the babies control you all right here in the middle of the church, right? And the baby says, you know what? I'm not digging this quiet in this room. I wanna go, I wanna like talk. Okay, and he, the baby starts talking, and, 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 and you are controlled in that because you are feeling something in that moment. You decide either you're going to like deal with it or you're going to get up and leave the room. Paul says in verse 21 and 22, there's a universal reality, the sin of Adam, that affected all of us. Here's the bad news. What Adam did ruined humanity. For as by one man came death, verse 22, for as in Adam all die. And we can't recover from that, not in and of ourselves. Here's the really good news. What Jesus did made us alive. And that's good, for, good news for all of us. And, and it's good news in two ways. Firstly, it means that we're no longer defined by our behaviors. We're defined by his behavior. The past doesn't define who I am. I'm not what I've done. I'm not what's been done to me. My identity is solely in Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
what's particular about this verse is that it talks not just about us, but it talks about Christ as well. The Bible calls Christ not just a first fruit, as we'll get to in a minute. It calls him the first of a new creation. And so he's mirroring for us who he is, sort of like Adam remade, but also what we will be when he comes again. He's mirroring for us that. It also means, and this is, this is really good, it also means that our future is secure in his hands. Why? Because he took my sin to the grave and he rose up without it. Victorious. I like what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. He says this, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Think of when God breathed life into, the, uh, into that dust that used to be Adam and Eve. In, in the Garden of Eden, that same thing now happens to all of us when we put our faith in Jesus, when we become children of God, that, that God breathes his spirit into ours and he, and he brings life to our mortal bodies. And Paul is also describing how Christ's bodily resurrection guarantees the future bodily resurrection of all believers. And he uses this term, first fruits, as in the first fruits of the harvest. That's, that's where Paul goes next. And so, second point, the resurrection gives us full restoration for the future. Look at verse 22. I know we read that verse already. I just like this verse. It's a pivotal verse, right? It's, 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 it's saying, this is who you were, but this is who you now are. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order. First, the first Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to, to Christ. First fruits is an outer agricultural term. Right? It's this whole concept that people would gather the first part of the harvest and as a sacrifice to God. They'd throw a big party to celebrate the first fruits um, because that first fruit of the harvest was an indicator of what the rest of the harvest was going to, was going to look like, what the, what the yield was going to be. And if it was a good Beginning harvest, it meant that there was a much more uh, that was going to be harvested as the, as the season went on. And so Paul is saying, as a first fruit, as Christ was raised, so will we be raised. As, as, as Christ has been raised, so we will be raised. As Christ received a new body, a, a body that after he was resurrected, the disciples were actually able to touch it. They were able to see it. They saw him eat. They were able to relate to him. So we will have a new body just like Christ. And for some of us in this room who have ailments in our body, or, or for even for those of us in the room who you just don't appreciate your body, you've done things in your body that you're ashamed of, that's good news. There's going to be a day when you and I don't struggle over sin anymore. That's what he's saying. There's going to be a day when you won't ache in your body or your body won't feel worn out after you've gotten a full night of sleep. There's going to be a day when you won't experience a week of, of weakness from sickness like I experienced this, this, this week. And you can hear it in my voice this morning. There's going to be a day when we don't have to fear death. It won't even be a thought. Why? Because we're going to be in this, this state where we'll live forever. There's going to be a day when we won't need a doctor anymore or medicine. Or we won't have to pray and ask for healing. I'm sorry, medical people in the world. It doesn't mean that you're not worthy of... You're, you're very much needed. When we get to heaven, you'll, you'll, you'll be those telling testimonies of all that God did in healing before the resurrection, right? And it's great when we see the kingdom of God breaking into our present reality and God heals or restores. He puts our lives back together. But all those things are just a foretaste of what it's going to be like forever. And that means that to believe in the resurrection, we'll get a new body that won't suffer, that won't sin, that won't fall apart, that will last forever. We'll enjoy life to the fullest of extremes. And, that's the, and, and it's all going to be this all kinds of stuff that we can't even imagine yet. You ever see on uh, Instagram, like y'all got Instagram, right? And you can't help but see people who are just, are just the perfect specimen of, of humanity, right? You got people that look good and people that work out to look good and people that eat right and their just bodies are fit. 
And of course, we envy all these pictures. And it's like, man, if I could be like that. So I got to work out with Troy. This is like a couple years ago. And Troy asked me, like, what are your, what are your fitness goals? I said, well, I just want to look like you. <laughs> right? And isn't that kind of what we do? We're like, see, like, I, want, I want that. Here's what, here's what the resurrection affords us. Uh, uh, will you, I'll use this terminology next week uh, when we talk more about what the resurrection looks like. But it's just a kernel falling to the ground that God's going to take. He's going to germinate. He's going to water it. And it's going to grow into this full, beautiful tree. And that's what your body is. Whatever you think about it, God is going to, he's going to germinate you into the person that he wants you to be for eternity. It's a small picture of what our bodies will be like forever. He continues in verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected to put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. All right, that was a whole lot of subjection, right? It was. I didn't count. I thought that's like 10 subjections. All right, here's what he's saying. Jesus is right now victor over Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave. That's what Paul is saying. God has subjected all of the world to, to Jesus. This is like I'm in the end zone. The referee has like put his hands up. Touchdown, right? This is, this is Anthony Rendon. On Wednesday, seventh inning, not just in the bleachers, out of the park. Like, Jesus has already won. Let, let the celebration begin. That, that's what he's saying. He's reigning at the right hand of God the Father. He's, he's executing his reign over all those who submit to Jesus. And so when you, when we individually say, I want to serve Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, I want Jesus to be Lord and Savior of my life, you, by the way you live, get to show the world what it looks like for a soul in a body to have the rule and reign of Christ over you. Not dominating you. you, serving you, growing you into who he wants you to be. And when we do this collectively as the gathered church, and when we go to our community groups and do this scattering around D.C. Metro, we become a display of what the rule and the reign of, of Jesus looks like over our lives as, as we display what Jesus is like to a, a watching world in the ways that we live and work and that we play. But, but don't miss this. Paul's also saying there's a future day when everything, all right, if I was writing on social, social media, I would cap, it was like all caps, everything italicized. Everything will be under his rule and everything is going to be as it ought to be. That's where we're headed as the church. And so the church is not an event on Sunday. The church is the people of God under the reign of Christ, exerting his power over sin, Satan, death in the present day, so that the world can see that the Lord is good. That's who you are. The church is not a building. The church is you. And when you live rightly with Christ ruling and reigning over your heart, and you allow people to see and experience that, it gives them a taste of what Jesus is like. And when they taste it, I think most of them, most of them will come to the, 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 the reality. It's like, why would I not want that? So what's our task? Is let people see it. Be an open display of the rule and reign of God over your life and all those ways that you live and work and play. We shouldn't downplay church. When we come here worshiping, we should worship as if God is amongst us. And then when we scatter, we should worship. We should, we should realize that we are going in the power of the Spirit to be an open display of what God is like as it is on earth at, on earth as it is in heaven. He affords us that task. So the reason why Paul calls the Corinthians' attention to the resurrection is that he knows if they believe this, it's going to change their lives. It's going to change everything about them. It'll change the way they live today. 
And I think it's supposed to change the way that we live today as well. And that's how all prophecy works. Anytime you see prophecy in the Bible, and, it, and it's talking about something that's going to happen in the future, as in this case, he's saying, as Christ has been resurrected, so will we be. It's a cue that anybody who wants to submit to God in the present to live like that, you've got to live like it's true right now. So we should live like we are going to be resurrected beings. Here's the third thing Paul wants to tell us. The resurrection gives true meaning to everything you do today. The resurrection gives true meaning to everything that you do today. In other words, it takes everyday life and infuses it with the hope of the future resurrection. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean? by being baptized on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? All right, can I be honest? This is not my favorite verse in this text. Right, so there's like 65,000 ideas about what Paul is saying in this, in this verse. So that means there's 65 iterations of what commentators think about this verse. I'm gonna give you two. Um, I'm gonna be quick about it because when you have when you have people that you respect giving um, just disparate ideas of what's going on, you know that, all right, I'm not spending a lot of time here. We'll find out in the resurrection, right? Two things. The first thought is Paul is mentioning proxy baptism. So um, say a Christian is getting baptized for non-believing friends and family members in hopes that it might save them and make them worthy for the, make them worthy for the resurrection. That's the first thought. The second thought is, is called the traditional option, and this is referring to people who were Christians that had come to faith in Corinth, they had died before being baptized, think like the thief on the cross, um, you know, true, truly um, changed by Jesus in the moment, he just never got baptized, and so other Christians would get baptized under, undergoing that sacrament for them just, to, just in obedience to, to do what Christ has told us to do. It's important that we know, all right, Paul does not condemn or condone this practice. We don't see this, this talk of being baptized for the dead any other place in Scripture, so we can't make a doctrine out of it. Um, we do see this in today's day. Like, if you come from a Mormon background or if you know any Mormons, Mormons actually practice this today. Uh, here's the most important statement. All right, evangelicals, we don't agree with this. All right, so we're not going to set the baptismal up and have you get baptized for somebody in your life that's already de died. Like, we're going to let the dead be dead. Okay? I didn't mean that to be sacrilegious. It's, it's just what it is. All right, so here's the takeaway. And I can see Paul is sitting at his desk or whatever, <clears throat> writing, shrugging his shoulders like, why? Why in the world? If you don't believe in a bodily resurrection, why would you go through the effort to get baptized? That's what he's, that's what he's saying. Baptism is not just some spiritual activity. Uh, it's a very physical reality. It's, it's taking a human body, putting it underwater, just, not just as a symbol of Jesus' life, death, and re resurrection from the grave, but it's, it's saying more so, in my body, I've sinned against God. And so when I go under the water, I'm saying, I need to be cleansed. I need to be forgiven in my body by someone else's body, namely Jesus, right? So baptism is a reminder that through that though we continue to sin in our body, Jesus' body paid for our sins and rose from the grave without sin for you and me. And so again, Paul is, is saying, if you, if you do this proxy baptism, Corinthians, and yet dismiss bodily resurrection, which of course serves as a foretaste, of, of what resurrection is going to be like, what on earth are you doing? You're wasting your time. He continues that train of thought in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow <clears throat> we die. So in verse 30, Paul is He's, again, he's shrugging his shoulders and he says, why in the world would I be willing to go through all of this? Why would I live my life like this? Why would I risk my life? Why would I say the things that I've said and endure the suffering that I have suffered if there is no such thing as a resurrection? In verse 32, when he talks about 
uh, encountering beasts or fighting with beasts. Most theologians say, I don't know if Paul fought a real beast, maybe a, a squirrel or a rat or something. No, they're, 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 they're liking it mostly to spiritual opposition that he came against as he is uh, carrying out his ministry. But here's, here's my takeaway from this. We have no context for this, and so we don't hear this well. We live in a world where it's, it's kind of foreign to even think that you could die from, from professing faith in Jesus. Many of us, most of us, don't know anyone that's gotten stoned or, or that's like lived through real persecution that's led to death because we testified about Jesus. And so Paul here is saying, why have Christians throughout history been willing to lose their lives or their heads or be burned at the stake? Who in their right mind would be willing to die for something that means nothing if after they die, that's all there is? And so he's clarifying, if there's no bodily resurrection, why in the world would we be willing to face death every day? Why would I be willing to lose my life for this if I don't have anything after it? What is the purpose? All right. So that's the text. What I want to do, I want to ask you a question, and I'll be done, because my voice is leaving me. Um, I want to ask you a question. I want us to think, just for a couple seconds, about the resurrection and how it impacts everyday life. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to think about the resurrection as some far-off thing that I don't have to worry about because it's going to happen, and I'm going to be, I'm, and Jesus is going to usher me into it, or he's not. But I think uh, Paul wants us to think, a resurrection if it's this impactful, that it, that it changes the whole outlook of the world, then it's supposed to change the way that we live our very lives down to the day. You know, there, there are three major explanations for what happens to the body and the soul when we die. Three explanations for what happens to the body and the soul when we die. And I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself, based on your behaviors, not necessarily your theology, because you guys know a lot of theology, but based on your behavior, which one of these views do you hold in view in, in regards to how you explain the afterlife? The first one is the body and the soul cease to exist. The body and the soul cease to exist. And this view says there's nothing after afterlife, not, nothing else. Like, like you die, that's it. That's why Paul quotes uh, in verse, uh, I think it's verse 32, like eat and drink for tomorrow <clears throat> we die. And so the people that hold to this, this view, this, this position, could consider themselves hedonists or self-preservationists, meaning that if this is all there is, I mean, I better live it up now. This is the kind of person that lives for the weekend, like they, they, they do their due diligence during the week, and then the weekend they're going to party, right? This is the person that saves up all of their vacation days, they save up all their money, and they're going to go for two or three or however many weeks their job might afford them, and they're going to have the time of their life because everything else in life doesn't matter, and if this is all there is, why not just use all that I have right now? Why not have some fun now? This is a person that's, that, that, that saves up all their retirement and projects 20 years from now so they can go live on a golf course and uh, live what they call a, a really satisfying life. And honestly, we're all doing that, aren't we? But, but here's, the, here's the, the challenge, though. Um, sometimes when we do these things, what we're, project, what we're saying to ourselves internally is, all right, this life is the real deal. This is where I can have fun. I'm going to make sure I have as much fun, as much pleasure, as much enjoyment in this life because I can't, I can't predict what's going to happen after that. There's another part of this. There's those of you here, perhaps, who are self-preservationists. And self-preservationists say, you know, if this is all there is, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to take a risk. I'm just going to protect all that I got. I'm going to make sure no harm comes to me and my family. I'm going to make sure that, like, none, I don't lose anything. And, and, of course, both of these realities are true for some of us in this room. That we live today as if there is no tomorrow. So I'm going to have fun, I'm going to protect, I'm going to do all that I can today because I can't trust tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. The second 
Um, the second view, the body ceases to exist before, uh, but the soul lives on. This is the dominant view of most Christians in the Western world, but I would caution you, this is far from Christian. This is, this is Gnosticism. This is mysticism. This is a little bit of dualism. It's the idea that the body will die, but the soul lives, and the soul exists in some kind of disembodied state. So this is what the Corinthians were mixed up in. And of course, the problem with this view is it leads to escapism or, or disembodied spirituality. It's, thinking, it's, it's kind of thinking like this. Man, I just got to get out of this place. It's escapism. Once I get out of this, everything is going to change. And so what we end up experiencing is a spirituality that's fundamentally non-physical in nature. Let me give you an example. So, so we're here. We've come to church today. We, got, we sang songs, confessing our faith. We read a scripture verse together. We're hearing the, hearing the word preach. And in a, a few minutes, Nick's going to come and give the benediction as we respond to the sermon. We're going to scatter into our homes, into our community groups. And even in community group, we're going to rehearse the gospel to ourselves but this, this view would be like, after all that spiritual activity, not going out and physically doing anything that you believe. Just having all this head knowledge, but not doing, not putting into action those things that you actually believe. <clears throat> this is the same thing as having good theology, yet fundamentally believing that what I do in the body doesn't matter at all. And many of us are living just like that. You know, a lot of us sit around and talk a lot about what we, say, what we think the Bible says and what we believe, but we don't actually embody what we believe in tangible forms. And so we claim a message that we aren't willing to live. We say we believe that God is generous, and yet we aren't generous with our own time, talent, and treasure, our resources, and our homes. We say that God is forgiving, and yet there's people that we haven't forgiven. We say that God is a God of reconciliation, but yet there are people that to whom we have not been reconciled to. And there's actually people that we don't even want to be reconciled to, by the way, that where they live or where they work. We say that God wants to be with us, but there are people that we don't want to be with. And that really is a disembodied faith that ultimately says, what I do in my body and what I believe on the inside in my soul are separate things, and we end up taking that idea and our beliefs into the afterlife. Here's the third point, and of course, this is, the, this is the point that the Bible espouses. The body and the soul continue to exist together as one whole. That's what Paul is telling us. That's what's going to happen. That your soul lives forever, but God, Jesus in his second, second coming is going to resurrect your body. We'll see what that looks like next week in the rest of the text. And they exist together forever with God. And the only way that we can comprehend that these bodies of ours will one day die and yet be raised, <clears throat> and yet when they are raised, it'll still be us. Like when Jesus was raised, it was him, and they recognized him, is the resurrection, right? There is no faith tradition outside of Christianity that once you die, both your body and soul will exist together forever but in its teaching. There's no other faith tradition that says that. And the only reason that we can have hope today is because it's Jesus did this. Jesus modeled this for us. And so that's good news for us. We can be thankful that we have a gospel that not only proclaims good news in the forgiveness of sins, but we, we, we have good news in um, that God saves our bodies along with us in the, in the, the fullest, most possible way. Here's how Paul ends, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And so early in Paul's letter, he confronts the Corinthians because of their boasting. You know, we know a lot. We have great knowledge. We've figured it out. And here Paul is basically uh, ending this portion of his letter saying, uh, you actually don't. Like, you don't know what you think you know. Because when you know the truth, you'll be changed by it, right? And they haven't yet been changed by the truth that he's shared with them such that they're living it out in a way that they know it. And so Paul says, wake up, Christians. Wake up, Corinthians. You think you know, but you live like you don't know the good news of Jesus. Get sober. You're drunk with the world's philosophies, and you're acting just like the world. And then he, he does what Paul does. 
You know, Paul always takes these, these heady theological topics and he brings it to where the people are. He says, bad company ruins good morals. He's quoting a Greek poet, Menender, that they would have known and would have revered. In other words, Paul is saying, you know what? You can have a moralistic approach to life and yet have no idea of, of, of what God and his gospel is, is pointing you to. And that's a word for all of us. You know, I, don't, I know a lot of people that are moralistic. Most of the people that I know are moralistic. I'm a pastor. I deal with Christians all day long, right? And here's what I found about Christians. Most of us are moralistic, and that's a good thing. The Bible commends that you would have morals, the character of God, and all of that. But here's the bad thing. You can be moralistic and still not know God and still not know the power of his resurrection that changes you from the inside out. And so let me ask you, Transit Church, which one of these views do you hold to in your life by your behavior? What does your life say you believe about the resurrection? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful. Thank you for these words. These are challenging words. They're hopeful words. God, I, I first want to thank you that you give us clear <clears throat> words <clears throat> about our faith, we don't have to guess about the hope that you've given us in Jesus. We look back and see the, the sin of Adam, and we, we look forward and see Christ giving us life, and we, we lift our hands and say, thank you, Jesus. Praise you. It is in Christ that we can have life. So Lord, I pray firstly for those here under the sound of my voice that may not have experienced this this newness of life that Paul says that you afford to, to all of us for professing our faith in Jesus. And I pray, God, that um, they would be so humble enough to, um, to heed your words, your words of comfort, your words of call that invites them to taste and see that, that you are good, that they would, they would give themselves to, to, to read the scriptures and see about this Jesus who the Bible says uh, lowers himself to live our life and goes to the cross in our place for our sin. What a great Savior he is. And so I commend them to him. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that uh, this idea of resurrection would be something that we don't just um, use on Easter. Here it is a few weeks from Christmas, and we're talking about the resurrection, which feels kind of odd. But it's important. Well, this is our great hope that our Savior came in our stead, lived the life that we couldn't live. He died in, the place, died in our place, and he went to the cross on our behalf. And because he rose from the grave, so shall we. God, give us great hope. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.